We have two readings this morning, one from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. And if you want to get the other one ready, it is Luke 4, 1 to 30. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Luke 4, 1 to 30. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to, to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Position, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy. In the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, for your word, for the way that you have written it, for us to, to learn from your word. And Lord, I pray today that you'll open our hearts, that you'll teach us from your word, you'll open my mouth that I'll speak your words in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard this message um, on YouTube by Paul Labutia from Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Um, and it spoke to me. So I thought I would share it with you. It has been modified, but I'm still using Paul's framework. I wish I could stand up here today and tell you that the devil is not real. I wish that I could tell you that he was a figment of someone's dark imagination, a fantasy written by some work of fiction. But I can't do that because the Bible tells us that Satan is real. Satan, who was once Lucifer, according to the Bible, was an incredibly beautiful and powerful angel who rebelled against God and was eventually thrown out of God's presence. Now, Matthew and Luke actually give us the account of this particular event, which occurred right before Jesus started his ministry. But in the Old Testament, we also read a similar story where Satan tempted Adam and Eve and the similarity is this. Not only did Adam and Jesus both encounter temptations at the hand of the devil, but they both encountered the same kind of temptations. Now, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't ever recall Adam turning a rock into bread. You're right there. But we need to go back and actually look at those temptations. So if you look at verse 6 in Genesis 3, we see, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So so Satan tempted Eve and then Adam and they ate the fruit. 
we see three temptations there. First one, that it was good for food. The second one, a delight to the eyes. And the third one, desirable to make one wise. Now, if you look at 1 John 2, verse 16, it says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. John outlines three categories of sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these line up exactly with the story in Genesis. Good for food, lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and desirable or desired to make one wise, which is the pride of life. Now, all of Satan's temptations fall under these three categories. He's got nothing new. He finds new ways to dish them out according to what we may find tempting in our lives or what we may be tempted by. But everything falls under these three categories. So if we go back to Luke in verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's the first category, the lust of the flesh. From what I've heard, the rocks in the, um, in the Jordan area, uh, by the way, the rivers washed over them, they look like loaves of bread. I've, I haven't actually seen a picture of them, but that's what they tell me. But the big question we have to ask is, when did Satan bring this temptation to Jesus? Was it right after Jesus got up after a big meal? Nope. Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I think hungry would be an understatement. Think about this. After 40 days of no food, he wasn't just hungry. He needed food now. His organs would have been starting, would have been starting to shut down. He needed food, otherwise something serious was going to happen. And what's important to see here is that it was at a time of intense hunger that Satan actually came to Jesus and said, look at those rocks over there. Why don't you turn them into a life of bread? You're the son of God. Just go for it. The Satan tempts Jesus to use the fact that he is the son of God to fix this problem quickly. And the reason that's important for you and I to see is that that's part of Satan's MO. Modus operandi. He attacks us when we're weak. He, and he's not going to attack us in areas where we're strong. If we don't have any temptations in a particular area, Satan is not going to waste his time. He doesn't have limited, he, he doesn't have unlimited resources. He's a limited but powerful being. He's not going to waste his time throwing out temptations in your life where there's no chance of you falling. But he will come to you in those areas where you're weak. You can bet on it. But the next question we need to ask here is why did Satan present Jesus with this temptation? 
what if Jesus had taken Satan up and said, yeah, good thinking, 99, let's have some lunch. Why would that have been so bad? Well, you see, Satan comes along when we have a need and he suggests to us that there are ways to meet our needs apart from trusting in God. Satan was trying to get Jesus to step out in his own power. Now, Jesus came to live our life. He came to live the life of every believer, to trust in the Lord with all of his heart, to wait upon the Lord for his provision. He wants us to act without relying on God. And the way he does that is he waits until there's a need in our lives that is crying out to be satisfied. And he suggests to us that this is the greatest need in our life. We know what happens when we're hungry and someone starts telling us about a meal they had. We're going to become more aware of our hunger, aren't we? I was talking to a work colleague the other day and he apparently saw me in, in, the, in, the, in, in, in the delicious noodle shop. And he asked me what I had. And I said, I had honey pepper beef and some homemade spring rolls. And at 9.30 in the morning, he says, I think I'm having a delicious noodle for lunch. But when Satan comes along and begins to plant suggestions or ideas about just how hungry you are, just how great this need is, he knows that if he does it relentlessly over a period of time, eventually you and I are going to become so fixated, so focused on our need that we're going to begin to actually become fearful and panicky about this thing not getting met. And once we begin to panic and once, we, once fears begins to set in, We'll do just about anything in order to meet that need. And that means stepping out and doing what feels like needs to be done, whatever that may be. Basically, we're saying to God, slide over, God. I'm getting in the driver's seat. You just sit there and be quiet. I'm driving this thing from here because this is a desperate situation. And desperate situations call for desperate measures. How many, time, how many of us have done that? I know I've done it quite a few times. But that's what Satan's attempting us to do, is focus on our need, focus on our need, focus on our need. And he'll say it's the greatest need. This is the number one need in your life. I'm sure we've never been tempted to turn a rock into bread. But I know there have been plenty of times in my life when I've been presented with a need and Satan has rushed in at that time of my weakness and success and successfully suggested to me that this is the greatest need in my life. And if this isn't taken care of, I may die. And at the same time, he loves to whisper, you know, I'm not absolutely sure that God is all that concerned with meeting your need. I think you're going to have to take this one up in your own strength and you need to take care of it and you need to do it now. And I've fallen into that trap so many times in my life and I'm willing to bet you probably have too because it, it has become amplified in our lives. So Satan comes along and Jesus is very hungry. But what is Jesus' response? If you look at verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. I wouldn't have thought of that. But with this one simple response, 
Jesus shifts the focus off his hunger and said, it's not my greatest need. You're attempting me to look at my hunger as the absolute number one greatest need in my life. It's not, and I will not allow you to do that. I will not allow you to shift my focus of what is truly my greatest need. But all Jesus says really is man will not live by bread alone or man does not live by bread alone. If you look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, and God humbled you and let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make. You know that man does not live by bread alone. Well, how does man live? He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus was basically saying, you're trying to tell me that this is my greatest need. Well, it's not. The greatest need in my life is to hang on every word that comes from the, word, from the mouth of my God. That is our greatest need too. Satan comes along and says, hey, Kev, this is a big one. This is the one that's going to take you down. You better take control because if you don't, you won't get that need met. But we need to have the courage to say that is not my greatest need. My greatest need is to hang on every word that comes from God. Do we have that courage? I know in my life, I sometimes have that courage, but most of the time I buckle under the pressure. Looking at verse five, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. That's the lust of the eyes. So John was shown the glory, sorry, sorry. So Jesus was shown the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. Must have been a pretty awesome sight. And Satan offered it all to Jesus. Basically, this can all be yours. But I need you to do something for me. Worship me and I'll give it to you. You know, there's a lot of things in this world that are beautiful. We look at them and we see their beauty. Satan comes along and suggests to us that we can have those things. Now, from a male point of view, we see a good-looking woman and we think, wow. That'd be nice to have. Or from a general point of view, we might see a car or a bike. We go, hmm, I want that. Then Satan says, if you want it bad enough, all you have to do is worship me. Now, you might think I've never been tempted to worship the devil. I'd never do anything that stupid. But think about it. When you run after the things of this world, when you desire them, when you put your focus totally on the things of the world and you begin to live for these things, you're essentially bowing down to them. You're essentially giving yourself to those things. You're offering yourself to those things and that is a definition of worship. What does it mean to worship God? 
when we offer ourselves to him, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. So whatever, whatever you offer yourself to, that is your God. And that is the thing that you worship. So what's the answer to this temptation? Well, it's pretty simple. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But when we hear the word worship, we don't always think of what it means. We don't always think about that idea of giving ourselves to something. Notice the word serve here, worship the Lord and serve him only. Isn't that what we do when we run after the things of the world? We begin to serve them. We become obsessed with those things. My niece is so consumed with, with being in a relationship and married that it has affected her health to the point that she's suffering from depression and other health issues. She can't understand why God has not put someone in her life. But instead of serving God in the current situation and being content with that, she's looking elsewhere. What we love, we're going to serve. So the response should be, worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. I don't always respond this way. What about you? Is this your response? Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Now, Satan makes a pretty startling statement in this conversation. And you'll notice he said, concerning all the things that Jesus saw, it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. When we read the scriptures, you know, that man sinned in the garden, we're not told of all the ramifications until much later. We find out by reading other scriptures, all the far-reaching implications of our sin. And we learn one here. The man and woman were placed in the garden and they were given dominion over everything in Genesis 1.26. When they sinned and responded to Satan's temptations, that dominion was taken away from them and it was given over to Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan has become something significant in the world in which we live. In John 12 and in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is referred to by Jesus and Paul as the ruler or God of this world, God with a little g. In Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't dispute with the devil when he makes these claims. Even though we're living in a world that belongs to the God of this world, the good news is that you and I have been reborn into a new kingdom, the kingdom of our God. And that kingdom begins in our hearts and it grows outward from there. But we read in Revelation eleven fifteen that Satan will lose his control. And that verse says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It was handed to Satan by a man, 
the first atom. It took a man, the last atom, to win it back by conquering death and overturning the curse of the enemy. Okay, so verse 9 says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This temptation is the pride of life. Now, you might look at this and ask yourself the question, how exactly would jumping off the temple appeal to Jesus' pride? It doesn't sound a very sensible thing to do. If Jesus left off the temple and the angels came and protected him from being hurt, that would be a pretty amazing sight. A grand entrance, if you like. The people wouldn't spend their time arguing and debating or even fighting over who this Jesus of Nazareth character is. They would have known right from the beginning is the Messiah. Who else could have done something like that? There's a prophecy in Malachi 3 that says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to have a big grand entrance. And they, they, they were disputing who Jesus was. So Satan says, okay, why don't you just jump off the temple? If Jesus had done that, he would have had the adoration of all the people right there, instant gratification. But Jesus' response was, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But Jesus will be recognized universally as the Messiah one day. He's not recognized now or even by his own people. But, you know, Satan's giving a shortcut. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world now. Jesus is going to get all the kingdoms of the world anyway. But Satan is saying, well, do it my way and you can have it all now. You can bypass that hurt. You can bypass all that suffering. You can bypass that death. You can, the cross isn't necessary. And I can give you my, and I can give my kingdom to anyone I want. I'll give it to you if you'll just worship me. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, one day. But Satan is offering, why wait to one day? Get it now. Just float down from the temple and get it now. Sounds like the attitude of the world these days, doesn't it? I've lost count of the number of times the thought has entered in, into my head to shortcut processes and not to have to wait and go through the difficulties. Often when I'm doing an air conditioning installation, I drill a hole and find I've hit a stud. Now, do I try and make it easier for myself and move the bracket or do I just go through the stud? What does the customer want? But I've learnt in my walk with the Lord that... It is through these difficulties that God often teaches me the most vital lessons. God allows us to go through difficulties and trials and he really wants us to call on him first for help. 
but so often we try to fix the issue in our own strength rather than God. We play every card in our hand. We think we can handle it. We can keep it under control. When we run out of cards and we've lost the game, that's when we call on God. Does everybody else do that or is it just me? When I finally call on God, he says, you know, I've been waiting for you to play all your cards so I could show you my hand, so I could show you what I want to do and what I want to teach you. Now, I'm not going to let you avoid this difficulty, but Kevin, I'll be with you. I'll walk through it with you and I'll see you to the other side. But I had to let you exhaust every avenue and every attempt to try to fix it in your own power before I would step in. But then I ask, so why did I need to be taught a lesson? Then God points me to the Bible. And in this case, we read about the difficulties that Jesus went through. And I think to myself, wow, if Jesus had to go through these temptations, why do I think I'm exempt? In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being, being, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's an important lesson here. Jesus learned through his human suffering. Luke 4 teaches us that in each and every temptation that Jesus went through, he responded by using Bible verses. He responded by using God's word. And that is so important. Satan is an opportunist. An opportunity is our weakness. And I'm sure we give him plenty of opportunities. And this is backed up in verse 13, where it says, and Satan left him until an opportune time. We need to know what our response to those attacks needs to be. It has to be the word of God. You and I have to learn to wield the sword of the spirit and do it in a way that Jesus showed us. That's incredibly important because the word of God, the power of the spirit, that is how you and I are going to stand against the temptations of the enemy. That's what God has given us to stand. And if we're not walking in the spirit and we're not taking up the sword of the spirit, guess what? We're going to fall. It's as simple as that. I can't stand against the temptations of Satan in my own power. Not even close. Satan's been doing this a long time, a lot longer than I have. And he knows what he's doing and he's very effective at it. I can't stand against him, not in the power of Kevin. What an oxymoron. There's no power in Kevin. There's none. The only power is in Jesus Christ. So he has given us everything we need for godliness. And that means when temptations arise, he's given us the ability to stand against them. Now, there's an important side note here too. If Jesus had succumbed to the temptation of the devil, 
he would not have been able to die for our sins. But because he stood firm, he was a perfect sacrifice for each one of us. Let me repeat that. If Jesus had succumbed to the temptation of the devil, he would not have been able to die for our sins. But because he stood firm, he was a perfect sacrifice for each one of us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? The sword of the spirit, the power of the spirit. That's how he's given us the ability to escape the temptations of the enemy. Spiritual attacks come, spiritual attacks go. We better be ready and take the example that Jesus gave us here. Don't let Satan convince you that this need is the biggest need of your life because the more you focus on a need, the bigger it gets. Do you remember what the Israelites' response was when the spies came back from the promised land and said, there's giants in the land? They just focused on the giants. Joshua and Caleb tried to convince them otherwise, but they couldn't do it because everybody was focusing on the problem. The giants, the giants, the giants. And the more they talked about it, the bigger those giants got. The same thing with the problems you're going through in your life. The more you focus on them, the more the enemy gets you to fixate on them, the bigger they become. The more overwhelming they become and you become panicky and fearful and you step out and you try to fix it on your own. It's not fun. I don't know about you, but every time I step out on my own, I screw it up and it becomes worse. But every time I take God at his word, when he says, Trust me with all your heart, all of your heart, Kevin, and lean not on your own understanding. I'll direct your paths. I'll see you through this thing. Trust me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In God's strength and with God's word, we can overcome temptation. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, that you have given us the way of escape, that you have, have offered us your word, your strength, your spirit to help us to overcome the evil one. And I pray that we will take you at your word, that we will trust in you with all our heart, in Jesus' name. Amen.